Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Hinge Points. I'm Denny Bessner here, as always, with Matt Chrisman. So, on today's episode, we're going to explore what is probably one of the most consequential decisions in modern history, and certainly in the history of the left, which was the Social Democratic Party of Germany uh, or SPD's decision to vote for war credits uh, in World War One, and essentially to abandon uh, the international class struggle, which had been the the basic you know the the teleology the telos of marxism so so world war 1 breaks out in in june 1914 and matt why don't you describe a little what what happened why did this war break out what was going on who did what uh well it was the culmination of a, a process uh of a military build up between the the various imperial states of Europe uh, as they scrambled for uh, access to uh, the resources of the globe, but also uh, the territory uh, within Europe itself. Uh, It was a period when uh, the relatively recently united German Empire was uh, making an effort to gain parity or to even eclipse the power of... uh, England on the high seas, uh, and where all of this brinksmanship was was being carried out uh, in the context of these alliance systems between states meant to uh, prevent uh, any one power from uh, becoming too belligerent. Uh, but what ended up happening is that it was that very uh, alliance system that triggered a continent-wide uh, conflagration, which began uh, after the assassination of the Austrian heir to the throne, Franz Ferdinand in uh, Sarajevo by Serb nationalists because the war's proximate cause was what Bismarck predicted it would be, some damn business in the Balkans because the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans had led to a scramble uh, for control of those territories by the European powers. Russia was seeking to uh, position itself as the the guardian of Slavs everywhere and was looking to try to uh, make a grab for uh, the Dardanelles while uh, Austria-Hungary was trying to keep its uh, multi-ethnic empire together uh, uh, and to extend its influence into uh, Bosnia. And so you get the end of this concert of Europe, this post-Napoleonic uh, peace. It wasn't actually much of a peace, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at, at some point. There was actually quite a few wars over the course of the 19th century. Uh, and this uh, this peace comes to an end with the assassination of the Archduke. Uh, and it's really important to emphasize, and I think this mirrors what's happening today, was that in Germany, and particularly amongst the German middle classes, the war was actually um, embraced sig- significantly, particularly particularly at the beginning. It was seen as a way to finally break through the bourgeois norms, the bourgeois civilization that had led the end of the cycle, the fin de siècle, the turn of the 20th century, to appear uh, so boring. And the idea amongst many people in Germany was that you'd actually be able to use the war to basically move from particular interests into new uh, collectivities, that you'd be uh, actually able to express meaning, to express a romantic value in the sacrifice of war. And the war was actually embraced by a lot of people at the time. Uh, not just in Germany, but all across Europe, wherever the war was, wherever it was time to, to uh, declare war, the, the popular for, uh, energies were all excited because everywhere in Europe, the, the, uh, the logic of capitalism was, was draining meaning from life like by the day. And people were People were aware of that, and 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 among the working class, that was uh, expressed uh, in this burgeoning uh, uh, socialist movement, uh, the socialist political formations that were coming into being. But uh, among the middle class, there is this uh, m- more uh, individuated desire to transcend the mechanisms of capitalism and the alienations that they produced. Uh, and uh, as has traditionally been the case, war is the uh, fantasy realm where uh, all the solid and, and, and uh, stodgy elements of, of existence sort of melt away and you live this new life uh, that is more at the quick, that is, uh, that is more uh, uh, animal, that is not uh, a prison of rationality and that 
that the experience of, of, of that that the experience of undergoing that then can transmore transmogrify a, a, a alienated uh, social uh, existence into a, a collective uh, uh, experienced one where where people have bonded through fire and been and come out forged into something else. Right. There's something more organic. There's this idea that war is a more organic experience. And so I think it's important to view World War One as two things. Um, one, it's really the end of, of feudalism and the aristocracy. I, I, the aristocracy was dealt its fatal blow, I'd say, in the French Revolution and, and in the industrial revolution that came quickly after Eric Hobsbawm's famous dual revolution of the French and industrial revolutions. But, you know, it kept on limping along. And World War One is really when a lot of them literally just get annihilated uh, and killed. So it could be viewed as the period on the aristocracy, but it's also an important turning point in the history, as Matt just uh, suggested, of the bourgeoisie, where things could have gone a different way. Yeah, uh, this is the last gasp of uh, aristocratic rule. Uh, and as with everything else in, in the history of modern Europe, uh, what ends up destroying them is that is that interstate competition, that uh, it, was, it was interstate competition that uh, led them to uh, unleash these forces of capitalism that ended up undermining them and, and empowering a different uh, emergent social force of the bourgeois. Uh, and then they resisted it uh, to one degree or another. Uh, and you see this process whereby uh, in, in the, the more advanced capitalist countries, uh, the, the aristocracy is essentially either decapitated or bought out or some combination of that. Whereas further east, uh, traditional forms of uh, monarchical rule uh, hold on until this point, but all of them are uh, smashed. All the idols are smashed by the war because it turns out uh, it's not a very efficient way to run a government. Absolutely not. And so you could view the beginning of World War One as this sort of cleansing moment, and people really recognize it as a time. It, it really reminds me of our own era where people are essentially looking for something meaningful. You yeah. know, they're, they're fighting anti-fascism and all those things. So there's a lot of uh, comparisons or analogies that I think could be drawn. But this really brings us to our hinge point. Early August 1914 in the German parliament. Uh, and this is really important because it's at this moment, uh, on August 3rd and August 4th, 1914, when the Social Democratic Party of Germany, again, uh, the SPD, one of the most august socialist parties in the world, one of the most important ones, the socialist- The model for all the other ones. The model for all the other ones, the Socialist Party of Marx's own country- decide in, in a world historical decision to vote with all the other parties in Germany in favor of war credits. Now, at the time, uh, the, the SPD defends this by saying that, that you know, the war is a defensive one. It's against Russia. It's against czarist uh, reactionary uh, Russia. And so you needed to do it. But from the larger long-term historical perspective, and, and certainly from Matt and my perspective, it's this is when the SPD formally abandons its commitment to international class struggle in the hopes that the German working classes would ally with other national working classes to prevent First World War. And in essence, the party begins to express its commitment to being a national party as opposed to an international party based on working class struggle. And this is, I think it's important to emphasize, a betrayal of the rank and file right after, you know, as the war breaks out in June, July, August, there's actually significant opposition from uh, the German working classes uh, against the war. And in fact, this leads to a division of the SPD, where in 1917, the party splits between an SPD, the majority SPD is what the original party is called, and an independent SPD. And you get, you know, basically the sundering of the radical and reformist strands of the party to some degree. Uh, and the, the original, the majority SPD becomes a party that rules during Weimar, and some might say didn't uh, react effectively to Hitler's rise. But we're we're going to suppose here is what if the SPD didn't vote in favor of war credits? What if the party actually had significantly refused to ally with the rest of the German political parties and instead of becoming a national party, committed itself to an international working class politics? And I think to understand why this would be so important, we have to think uh, what Marx wanted and what Marx thought the role of Germany would be. Yeah, so Germany is the model for the arising working class consciousness that takes hold all throughout Europe uh, as the Industrial Revolution intensifies in the 19th century. Because obviously, the fact that Marx is German is 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 key to this. Uh, he is conceiving his notions in 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 a context uh, uh, of of Germany, uh, and 
the uh, emergence of the uh, of the German state after the Franco-Prussian War uh, created the a dynamic, uh, rapidly industrializing uh, economy that had such a uh, febrile working class movement and so much agitation and so much effective propagandization and ideological formation that the German ruling class broke really with with much of the rest of uh, uh, the continental European uh, tradition in the 1880s and actually uh, legalized the socialist movement, which had been uh, illegal until that point, uh, instituted a series of social reform measures to uh, alleviate a lot of their uh, most uh, persistent complaints uh, and uh, brought the working class into the political fold with by allowing the uh, social democrats to to run for office to sit in parliament uh, and very quickly they became uh, the sole political organ of the working class in germany and and that really was the blueprint that Marx had predicted. Right. Because Marx really, uh, and this is, I think, when we start talking about the Soviet Union in another episode, this is really critical because Marx, a lot of the Marxist theory of revolution, a lot of the Marxian understanding of history, in my opinion, at least, and there are disagreements over this, but really depended on essentially Central Europe being the site of revolution. It really depended on Central Europe being the space where where the working class would become the subject and the object of history, where, where this proletariat population that is moving to the cities for the first time in the 19th century that is pushing this new dynamic thing called capitalism is going to uh, able uh, is going to become conscious of itself seize the means of production and instigate a world revolution and of course what happens over the course of the 19th century particularly by the the fin de siècle is that the working class movement begins to be channeled into political parties and the SPD is really I think the most important working class political party uh, on earth yeah. um, and so so it's really in the SPD that the hopes for international revolution are placed, uh, and I think rightly, especially when we see what happens when the the revolution occurs in the in the, the, the decrepit czarist uh, empire, you know, the Russian Empire, and what happens with the Soviet Union. Um, and I think one of the reasons that ha- occurred as it did was because the SPD voted to essentially become a national party. So, Matt, what do you think happens? Let's say the SPD, it's August 1914, and the leaders are like, you know, fuck this. We're not going to go along with this. We're not going to become a national party. We're going to make uh, links to the French working class. We're going to make links to the British working class. We're going to try to reach out to to the Russian Empire and, and the peasantry there and try to prevent a World War One. What What do you think uh, would have happened, or at least what possibilities would that have presented to people at the time? It would at the very least, have given the socialist movements uh, and political leadership of those in the other European countries uh, a chance to do something other than what they did. Uh, uh, it became, it, once the German Socialist Democratic Party votes for war credits, it dooms all other uh, working class parties in Europe to follow suit. Uh, because you have to. You, at that point, uh, it has been fully foreclosed because because you, you you're essentially asking your people to unilaterally disarm in the face of uh, uh, a German uh, military machine uh, that is that ha- that is the at that point uh, like the national enemy of France entirely and, and also very successful over the course of the 19th century the Austro-Prussian War the Franco-Prussian War you know extremely extremely successful and, military and, and ruled over by a fucking kaiser you know i mean the the, the defensive democracy uh propaganda from the allies of world war one is of course pretty pretty silly especially when you consider the czarist russia is a key component of the <laughs> of the um coalition but it's certainly true that if you're on the other side of uh you know the rhine and you're looking at at the bosch and and here's uh and and the uh your fellow workers have decided that they're going to back the war. You have no choice. There is no other alternative. You have to 
convince yourself that this is actually defense of war and that 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 uh there's some sort of uh benefit to this that that you're not betraying socialism but in in, the, in that context uh, uh the choice has been made for you by the by the germans that's not to say that it, there would have been some inevitable uprising across europe in opposition because you know nationalist sentiments had been the real foundational uh uh, they had been the passions that had replaced the religious wars of early modern Europe uh, in the 19th century and were nothing to sneeze at and were present all throughout every element of European life, including in the working classes of all of these countries. So the, the, there is a, a strong tide that you would be pushing against, which is what more than anything made them decide to not do it, to to not press their luck, as it were. Right. And I think you could look at the 19th century from the perspective of 2021 as to some degree a battle between class consciousness and national consciousness. Yes. If right. something's got to replace God. Right. God God died and there has to be something to fill the space, something to organize your understanding of the world around you, to create uh, you know, hosts of angels and demons to 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 uh to negotiate your life between uh, and and those were the two offerings. Uh, race comes into it more in the 20th century, but at that time it is nationalism and class. And that contest was moving in the direction of class for many of the workers of Europe, but it was certainly not universal. Right, and the whole Marxist prediction, uh, in, in my opinion at least, was premised on that something like World War I couldn't happen. Yeah. Was that, the, the whole thing was that the workers wouldn't do what they did, which yes. was, or, and I actually want to underline, it's, this is where it gets into complicated territory, whether it was the workers or sort of the professionalized workers of the party leadership. And this is where you get a lot yeah, of- Yeah, see, that's the issue. This like, is the issue. This, this is where, if, if you want to say, uh, you know, this this is the uh, DSA versus the you know the the Amazon workers. Yeah. The DSA is voting, or, or in the sense that like the people who are of a, of a particular economic class in general are voting for uh, these this social formation, this class formation, which they're supposed to represent. It was it was the legalization of the party that made the SDP the power it was, but it, that that decision also over time uh, bourgeoisified the party in that its its leadership. We're no longer workers in a, in a, in a material sense. The, the people who made decisions both in the party itself and in the labor unions that supported it because it, was a, it, was, it wasn't just a party. It was a party uh, that, that ruled through a collaboration with, with labor unions. The, the leaders of both of those groups were not workers in any sense. They, they did not go to factories. They did not perform the alienating work that Marx talks about that is the thing that radicalizes people and creates class consciousness. And they, workers used to actually call them in German, the Dicken Bunsen, the fat cats. <laughs> and so there was a lot of talk at the time about the Dicken Bunsen basically betraying uh, the working class. Because, and, and th that fact is, is meaningful because when the decision top point comes, when to, uh, the summer of uh, 1914 comes, uh, the the calculus of of your your fat cats within the party and in the in the in the labor movement uh, is going to be different than those of the workers. For one thing, there's much more likely that they're going to actually have to fight this war and get shot during it. Uh, but also, if they do decide to vote against credits and to resist the war, they will likely lose their positions in parliament. Absolutely, they will likely lose their. There is a very good chance they'll get arrested. Right. The Socialist Party was illegal for a lot of the 19th century yes, in Germany. And it, Literally it, illegal. It was well understood, especially at the top, that the, uh, the Social Democratic Party existed at the sufferance of the state and that that sufferance could be removed. And doing something like refusing to uh, vote for war credits in a, in a continent-wide conflagration would count as, as a, a reason to do that. And that, I think, more than anything, determined the, the decision is they had convinced themselves by that point that they were on a reformist road to communism that would not require revolution. That They had fully metabolized the Bernstein uh, uh, revisionism uh, because uh, the thing that convinced them, and I, th and I really do think that the thing that convinced them of that was nothing logical, rational. It was not uh, a, a grasp of the immortal science. It was their <laughs> full bellies. It was their pocket watches. It was the fact that by pursuing this course, they personally had advanced, which they were able to, in their minds, conflate to the advance of the working class in general.
So let's say for some reason the Dick and Bonds and they all wake up one day and they're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to do the Marxist working class. What happens? Do we get, uh, uh, first of all, World War One probably can't happen if there's a general strike in Germany. In, uh, in the summer of 1914, if there's a huge general strike, there probably can't be that sort of invasion of the Western Front and these, these various fights that happen. So what, what happens? Is there a way for the workers of the world to unite or, or is that an impossibility? Uh, but let's say they do unite. What then? World War One doesn't happen. Is there a European-wide revolution? Is there a linking up with Lenin uh, and the Soviet Union? What things could have gone differently if it didn't occur as in the way that it did? Uh, I, I would say that as, as, as historical counterfactuals go, this one is uh, a little overdetermined. Like, I, I, I think that the fact that the war hadn't happened yet kind of uh, doomed this any kind of alternative course because n- nobody thought it was going to be the war that it turned out to be. Uh, the, 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 like the reason that they call it, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a peace period after the council of Vienna, isn't that there weren't wars. There were, it's just that the prolonged years long, massively bloody uh, warfare of the Napoleonic era was over. Uh, wars of the 19th century, later 19th century in Europe were largely very short one uh, one season, one campaign, maybe one or two big battles, and then people signed a peace treaty. And there was a generalized understanding that this war would be like that. Uh, and it's and it's decisions are made in that context. Like we look at now and we see World War One as as this this apocalyptic uh, explosion at the heart of capitalism, and uh, the moment that the working class had been waiting for the moment to to come to a fundamental conflict with capitalism and that is the uh that is the reality that is often masked by the day-to-day necessities of living in a in a uh, in a society and and doing your part as a, a lawful citizen in one way or another uh, even if you consider yourself a radical is that is that all political mobile all political action all uh party building, all labor activism. It might be narrowly about winning an election. It might be narrowly about, about, narrowly about winning uh, concessions from an employer in a strike. But the long-term goal needs to be to be marshalling forces for the moment of conflict, the final irrevocable moment of conflict to with transcend, capitalism. To transcend the system. And that, and that is what got obscured by the the success of the of the SDP, as Bane said in Batman, uh, the fucking victory has defeated you. Uh, they lost that urgency at the top of the party, uh, uh, and convinced themselves that no, we can legislate our way to reforms that will take the power away from capitalists and take and and uh, fundamentally change our relationship to one another, which is the thing that is hardest to keep you in your head on a day-to-day level is that socialism will would require a a social transformation that is by definition disruptive wildly disruptive and at the expense of a class of people who currently have concentrated power because of the socialist party (laughs) that will not give it up right and so while you may decide that elections are worth pursuing and they often are they're often the only thing to do in a given moment you can't say well because we're trying to do a world revolution we can't do uh, elections like no you have to build capacity but you're building capacity for a confrontation and i think that the leadership of the sdp convinced themselves that this wasn't it so then this raises an interesting question uh, particularly as we pursue uh this podcast will we come up against certain moments that are overdetermined and that are impossible. Because essentially what we're saying here to some significant degree is that the workers' revolution that Marx envisioned was impossible, that it was going to have to be some sort of war between actually existing nation states, which emerged in the 19th and early 20th century, and that it was basically impossible for there to be a workers' revolt against the leaders, thereby making the Marxist telos impossible to fill in actual history. Yeah. 
By saying that it's overdetermined, we're essentially saying that there, an- another world wasn't possible, that there was no way that there was ever going to be oh. workers' revolution. Uh, I would say to that that uh, that there was that the period from fourteen to forty five is is the is the deciding time, uh, and that that what ended up happening uh, was not an inevitability, basically, and that means that that the Marxist telos is, is in my mind still still alive. Uh, and and in the future we'll talk more about this, and that's why I think that the real, the real moment when history gets liquid and when when you can imagine alternatives to what we got is in the aftermath of World War One, because I think one of the things. So World War One is inevitable, basically. What, what, what I, we're I, coming I so. at, there has to be some sort of conflagration between the declining European empires, and there there has to be a final. There has to be a violent dissolution with the system as it's as it exists, because those workers they of Germany they might not have been too keen on going to war, and many of them might have been opposed to it. But would you have had sufficient will in a, in the German working class to say no to this war that the rest of the continent is going is starting? Say no to the nationalist identity that many of them had uh, had imbued by that point. Uh, and then keep saying no in the face of what would be obvious and immediate and violent repression by the state. Uh, and then hope, basically, that you have inspired the working classes of those other countries to uh, to a point of solidarity. Even though at that point, uh, not just for the rulers, not just for the leaders of, Ger- of the German Social Democratic Party, but for ordinary workers, the revisionist road had shown results they had gotten concessions from labor their li- their their lives were less alienated and less miserable than they had been in the earlier days of uh, of capitalism there was uh, an ameliorative af- po- uh, effect going on now that's you know thanks to uh, the spoils of empire and 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 the creation of international markets that are like uh, uh, changing uh, allowing more surplus to flow to to workers than than like Marx had imagined in a closed system of uh, national capitalism. Right, right. Uh, Very and, critical point, actually. Yeah and, yeah, and so there was still something for them in the system as it existed that would have made the risk of saying no to the war, especially when you don't know what that war is. You right. don't know how bad it's going to be. You don't know how how disruptive it's going to be. Uh, a bridge too far, and I think. Not only were the the social democrats too comfortable to make that decision, they were too in unsure of the of the actions of the other uh, uh, parties in Europe because you know they had their international, they had their second international, they had their meetings, but they they didn't really have right a coordination the, between each other. And I wanted to underline that because I think this is one of the biggest questions of left wing politics in modern history, which is how do you actually build those sorts of international or transnational connections that are as or that feel literally as organic as the connection to the nation? Exactly. Right. And so, to some degree, this is the big question of left wing politics that we haven't answered, yeah. and frankly, haven't even come close to answering. And so that question. I think was initiated all the, all the theory before 1914 is that it's going to build there that yeah. you're going to get this international transnational working class and it consciousness. Was, and it seemed to be moving in that direction, but then a, before those bonds had been made, before the connective tissue had really, really built up, you have this decision. You have this lightning strike in the form of the war, and and because of the lack of development along those lines, and because of the 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 lure of war that's always there uh and it's certainly in europe my god those guys love going to war uh at least they did until they like you know what uh enough although honestly now maybe they want to go to war again who knows well they they really enjoyed all the responsibility to protect the second they were able to bomb the global south they were they love that stuff the icc loves loves trying people they love trying africans yeah favorite thing it's their favorite thing once in a while yeah yeah well Um, in the the balkans we return again to the balkans yeah but uh, in the absence of faith that they have created a thing that can withstand the, the, the reaction that that would cause, they, they do the safe, they make the safe decision, what feels to them like the safe decision. And if they hadn't, I think you likely get some degree of, uh, of coordinated resistance in the form of strikes and stuff. But my my instinct from my knowledge of the moment is that it would have it would have guttered out and the war still would have happened. So if we're if we're arguing that World War One is overdetermined, and to some degree, uh, when we're looking at 1914 as a synchronic 
moment, I agree. Was there anything that could have happened over the course of the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries to make that different? Because this is also the big question, or was the fact of essentially colonialism serving as an uh, sort of escape valve of class tension within the major powers of Europe, the UK, France, and Germany, uh, essentially prevented the types of transnational solidarity that would have been necessary to make the SPD vote against war credits? I think that that is the the part of that that's what has always saved european capitalism i mean it's what created european capitalism it was it was the plunder of uh of the west of west the western hemisphere that 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 created the the capital formations that that built western capitalism uh it was the war the war uh, the, the, the money from the new world fueled the wars of the of the uh 16th and 17th centuries that that created the Westphalian system, uh, and then it was exploiting the colonial properties that created the uh, trade networks that built capitalism in the North Atlantic, where it then you know spread throughout the entire continent and then the world, and also creates, which is so important to us today, consumers. Yes, right. You 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 get the rise of fashion, you get the rise of mass consumption, you get the rise of mass politics over the course of the nineteenth century, and all of these things are working to mitigate class consciousness. Yes, like the marginal revolution in economics, right? That says. We don't. You you shouldn't think about uh, value in terms of the labor that goes into it, but in in terms of its uh, the value as in the eye of a consumer. That is a uh, that is an epistemic shift. Uh, you are no longer viewing uh, the the per, the uh, individual the, the citizen as a producer, but as a consumer. And that and and even though they are still producing, they aren't thinking of themselves as pro- exactly. Producers. They're thinking of themselves as consumers. Because uh, the death spiral of is miseration that Marx sees in capitalism and is part of capitalism is objectively happening. Is objectively happening. Is subjectively is not occurring in Europe because right. of uh, uh, imperialism, because right. of the opening of markets elsewhere, and and, and the bringing in of, of of cheap resources into Europe to be consumed. And so you have this battle between class consciousness and, and this consumer identity, which is by definition nationalist. Right. Uh, because you are it's not a consumer. You're not a, you are a consumer in a national context, in, 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 in a specific cultural context that, that, that does not have the inherent solidarity and linkages that, that the idea of, of being a worker does. So this is the big question. I mean, we're getting to enormous questions of Marxist theory in the very first episode, but why is that so powerful, right? This is, why is national organic connection to a land or envisioned organic connection to a land, an imagined community, as Benedict Anderson famously put it, what was, what proved so much more powerful about that ideology as opposed to uh, viewing things through class, viewing things through an international class? Because this is, I do think, what Marx predicted. And he was right, objectively, I would say, about everything. Marx objectively gets most things right not Absolutely. 100% but he like the 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 actual course of actually existing capitalism to a remarkable degree uh basically followed the course that Marx predicted in the middle of the 19th century yeah absolutely but where Marx's biggest failing i think was the subjective experience of actually living workers on the ground and right. this to me is the entire counterfactual of european history which is that nationalism uh consumption uh over time race really came came to supplant and uh, move away class identity as a founding organizational principle of individual lives i think that the 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 root of the answer comes to the fact that nationalism comes first because these are uh these notions are built these notions of identity are are new right they they are built uh up among these people who uh whose ancestors throughout most of European history had had an identity that was fixed to a area of land and that was determined by that, like peasants and, and landowners. And that's basically your division of humanity. And, and it's all defined by these localities and, and these abstract notions are, are not even conceivable. They're, they're unnecessary uh, and they don't relate to the conditions of life. But then capitalism begins churning up the earth and bringing people from these fixed uh, uh, relations into uh, either literally bringing them into cities or through mass media uh, and mass culture, if they're staying on the land, uh, uh, bringing them into these notions through that. These imagined spaces yeah, exactly. of community, essentially. And, yeah. and so the, the place where these new identities are being formed 
is is in these cities and the people doing the formation at first are not workers they're the people who have time to sit around in coffee shops and wonder about like okay what do we have now if we don't have the one if we don't have god what the hell what are we doing here and uh because the people making uh that culture at that point are not workers uh when they're grasping for symbols and ideas and concepts they're going to one uh they're going to not be in conflict with uh, capitalism because they're being born out of it, and the, the, it's being made by people who are functionally within capitalism. And also, literally, this is where liberalism also starts in the salon, and capitalism and liberalism are all linked to enlightenment ideas about rationality, about reason, about order, about progress. Right. And I think that's also really critical to understand. Yes, we're, we're all, we're all uh, individuals. Uh, we're all negotiating uh, our relationships with each other uh, as strangers fundamentally. Uh, so how will we come back into reacquaintance with each other? Right, with self-interests that are, yes. that are naturally in conflict yes. with other self-interests. And uh, the, the only real material that is amenable to capitalism uh, and that uh, is relatable to the experience of, of this urban bourgeois and, and uh, the people in the, uh, the urban bourgeois and then the culture creators around that bourgeois uh, are these national myths and identities and languages that 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 uh, that they can f- uh, build a story around a, a, a story a, a narrative of of personhood of identity of 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 a belonging. I mean, uh, Benedict Anderson's work on this uh, points out that that nationalism is very much a media phenomenon. That media being newspapers, and that, that uh, the creation of uh, mass uh, cheap uh, newspapers, all written by these same idle scribes in the cities, uh, it inscribes these ideas. And then, uh, while this is happening, the working class is also being created, but with less access to the tools of cultural production, by definition, because they don't. They're working. They don't have. They're they're living the lives that, that Marx and Engels were describing of of immiseration of 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 their lives stripped of any time for personal reflection, leisure, advancement of any kind. And this is why Marx underlines the importance of the working class becoming conscious of itself. Yes, this is the critical thing that was supposed to happen in the 19th century, and it did. But it came in the backdraft of the creation of these national identities. So, first, you are if you are coming into being as an as a as a worker uh, in these countries, you are finding yourself first templated with these uh, language and, and, and religious and, and uh, national identities. And then you are also a worker. And because you are working in the conditions that Marx describes of close proximity, of, of, uh, of social homogeneity, people start creating culture that way. They are able to they steal some time away. They start, they start uh, organizing to improve their lot with their employer giving themselves both some space and time to uh you know uh reflect and also evidence of the effectiveness of organized action and also an understanding of who they're in opposition to an opposition an understanding of where their lives miseries come from not abstract enemies and in foreign countries their employer who speaks the same language comes from the same country has the same flag believes the same things about about the nation but who is the face of their exploitation? Uh, and then in that process, um, through this struggle, now working class people start writing newspapers. Right. Professionalization. Yeah, exactly. Start doing the things that the, uh, the bourgeois were doing 30, 40 years earlier. And they are now creating a new narrative with a new understanding that is... Uh, was created within the capitalism, but is now a counter hegemony generated by uh, a, a working class. Like these, pa- the newspapers bought by working class people, not funded by the state. You know, uh, organic to this social formation, and so you have within capitalism this social formation that obs- observes a lot of the forms, but has this different, fundamentally different content and that generates this different identity. 
And if and so then the issue is if that continued unabated, then we could have expected the SPD to vote against the war credits. But I think the problem is that what happens is the professionalization, which occurs throughout society, yes. which is essentially, in my opinion, just a new instantiation of the Marxian division of labor. Yeah, exactly. Where effectively you have the creation of party structures and party bureaucracies, where the existence of party bureaucrats out they essentially had their own logic where in some sense the their the existence of their very jobs depends on the continuation of class exploitation yes it's true they they, they the, the people whose job it is basically to get the working class ready for the moment of uh the real moment of crisis to abolish themselves the, <laughs> are would have to be operating out of a desire to abolish their own selves that abolish their their uh, livelihoods which are relatively comfortable uh ab- ab- like they get to live they got to live lives where they lived in bourgeois comfort but got to feel like they were on the right side of history which is the greatest dream you can imagine my god us sitting we're here. living it baby <laughs> this is this is like if you want to understand the online left of the last uh of, like the last five six years it is this terminal crisis of the middle class in america and and people wanting to feel like they are helping while not giving up any of the pleasures any of the associated with yeah. being a uh, a bourgeois consumer. Uh, so it's a lot to ask of people. And in fact, in, it's not really possible. Like that is why so many uh, Marxists uh, f- uh, would focus on the need for uh, a continual infusion of, of like energy from the rank and file to keep the 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 socialist movement from ossifying that way uh and the thing that made that happen the thing that kept the party responsive uh was really uh its degree of discomfort its degree of uh criminality the degree to which that they were the subject of oppression and and uh violence from the state the degree that they were kept uh from enjoying the full fruits uh of uh, bourgeois life even though they weren't workers which is what happened with the Russian Social Democratic Party. Uh, but in, in the German case, uh, you had people who were living as bourgeois without bourgeois neuroses because they got to think they were working on the side of history uh, because bourgeois neuroses is, is being addicted to a life that you know is wrong and then having to figure out uh, how to live, uh, with, how that to live with that. And that, that, that defines like the cultural production of the middle class for the last 200 years. Yeah, especially today as yeah. we're approaching another moment of terminal yeah, crisis. Yeah. Uh, but then within that embedded, you have this other, uh, this little mini bourgeois that is hypothetically answerable to this movement, but that in practice is making individual decisions without uh, real accountability uh, that are going to be motivated by their, uh, their not even conscious desire to maintain their position within a system rather than to see it abolished. Right. Which begins to suggest that the institutionalization or domestification of radical movements essentially works against them, at least in capitalism, which is perhaps one of the biggest questions that we're facing today, because I don't see, especially in 2021, any possibility of the type of violent revolution that we'll talk about in in the next episode that happened in 1918-1919 Germany. That sort of thing is impossible. So you have the institutionalization and mechanization of a party structure that inevitably works against its very existence inevitably works against what you're trying to go for which is is a transcendence of capitalism and i think this is one of the major problems that you know the modern period the modern period of political parties the modern period of elections presents to those of us who who want to genuinely transcend capitalism which is how do you channel that sort of righteous working class anger and rage into an institutional form that maintains its revolutionary capacities it's never happened yeah so i think this is this is one of the biggest, you know, problems facing people who genuinely want to transcend capitalism, not just have, you know, a, a kinder, nicer capitalism with a nicer face type situation. Uh, and I, I, I think that World War One is really the, the sort of the, the apex moment of that, which is it, which is that decision, the SPD's decision to vote for war credit to just underline the very tension of having a working class political party. Not that you don't need it. You do need it. And that's oh, yeah. the problem because there's no, there's no escaping. There's no, there's no moving outside of the beast. There's no, there's no moving outside of the system. Yeah. And I would say that, uh, that it was the experience of world war one, the actual experience of, of what it was, not what people thought it was going to be in 1914 when that decision was made that, uh, offers the real, what if the real alternative when, when the people of Germany and all of Europe 
had, had experienced or, what or like holy shit like this, Jesus Christ like this is what <laughs> this, this is what we is get what we, this is what we get this is industrial war we we are we are building machines just to kill each other right uh, very for, very efficiently <laughs> yeah, for for the benefit of a de- decrepit uh, sclerotic ruling class who has no connection to us whatsoever uh, and that but the, the thing is is that that realization could only have come through the experience of the war right. Uh, right, you and, needed that war. Yeah, right? There's no and, way to avoid that. And honestly, the 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 actions of the SDP after the war really show you the degree to which the bourgeoisification of the party had become uh, a, ter- a, a, a had just poisoned it and doomed it in many ways. Because it was it was we'll talk about this uh, later, but it was social democrats who created the the nucleus of of Nazism in the form of the Freikorps. Like they were the ones who had the idea to put down a, re- a, a, a rebellion of workers, sailors, and soldiers, the same ones who had taken power in St. Petersburg, uh, and put it down by, hire, by collecting the most damaged, uh, violence-addicted uh, victims of the uh, Eastern Front and Western Fronts and, and throw them uh, into battle. And then the, the the culture that they created there ended up becoming the culture of the of the Nazi Party, and we'll we'll talk about that in the next episode. But I also just wanted to underline a couple of things that that already started during the war because once the SPD split, uh, the majority SPD allied with the Catholic Center Party and the Liberal Progressive Party. So you begin to get these formations that are going to defend the status quo yeah. and begin to uh, to pursue a path not necessarily towards socialism but to a finer capitalism. And honestly, the fact that after the war, the 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 center of gravity of the of the SDP was making those decisions was seeing the revolutions in the streets, was seeing the Kiel uh, mutiny, and seeing the Berlin. Uh, uh, marchers and says let's call let's get uh, Ernst Younger in here uh, that to me more than anything proves that there was no other uh, n- there was no other historically re- realistic option than them voting war credits in 1914 if that experience of that war was not enough to 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 shake from their perch of, of sort of bourgeois self-satisfaction uh, if they were that even even if anything even else after revo- that even the actual more revolution even yeah. more confirm even more dedicated to the status quo after that experience then it's very hard to imagine anything making them uh, vote otherwise in 1914 so then why don't we close on this question and and, and it's a big one what did Marx get wrong? And I think in my opinion, and, and I think uh, I'm not new here, basically all this Marxist theory after World War One is essentially addressing this question, but he didn't fully appreciate the other subjective identities that people would be, it would feel like an uh, organic connection to. This sort of teleology between the lived experience of being a worker and the connections that one draws with other workers by virtue of that lived experience across other uh, identity groups proved to be incorrect. So there is a problem in either in his conception of human nature and or his conception of psychology, uh, I would say. And again, I just want to underline genius, one of the smartest men uh, of all time, certainly in the last 200 years, and basically everything he objectively predicted got right. But there was a subjective lacking there that I, that I think is, is, is evident from the beginning, which might be a bit of a controversial claim. Curious what you think. Uh, I, I don't know if I would even say that he was wrong about it in, that, in so much as he is that he... At a certain point, he was sketching out this absolutely accurate diagram of what capitalism was. Right. Like as how as it a functions. system. As a system. He got it right. <laughs> but that system is composed of people. Right. And, and, there, and there is never going to be a, a systematic uh, uh, analysis of, of the human right. that experience could, could account for that. that has predictive power because that's where the fucking butterflies come in. Like, right. We we make decisions. Man makes you know man makes his own history, but not uh, uh, as he chooses, as right. Mark said. It's like we are, uh, if only out of our ignorance, we are free to make decisions in our lives. Like because we talk, Marxism talks about uh, material interests and how that is what motivates people, and that that is true. But we don't know what our material interests are. That is not a thing that exists objectively. We have an idea of what our material or how they're are. filtered through and various that's things through a million different things that yeah. that give us ideas that are individuated. And while people sort into positions in a society based on their demographics and their experiences and their relationship to a mode of production, there still are 
people at crucial points who are going to make decisions that are not determinable and not predictable. Right. And that is why that's what history is, is the intersection of these machines, these these determined machines, and then the humans within them. And that is why I think that counter history, counterfactual history is so fascinating because if you if you understand that that is the, the how history works, then you can always look back at history and find the points where the, the, that are, where uh, contingency emerged, where the people in the place are close enough to uh, consequential decisions, but also uh, you know subjective enough that something else could have happened. And so, uh, I'd say that what Marx in a material sense, just didn't process enough was what uh, imperialism would do. Right. Uh, not so much anything he got wrong about human nature, just stuff that you can't predict about what people who have whatever a human nature is are going to do in a given moment. Right. But the thing that changed, the actual equation of European capitalism that he under- as he understood it, was changed by the introduction of this massive, these markets, more importantly, these places where hyper exploitation could go on outside of of these the uh the metropole outside of these uh these uh civic concepts like you could have a situation in uh in germany where uh or in france or in england where the worst work the the most alienating and miserable work (laughs) is not being done there Right. Not being done by Germans or English people. It's being done by subject people who have been right. racially and geographically in, uh, uh, erased from your conception of humanity. Right. And, and the benefits of their labor, their surplus of their labor, can then be enjoyed at low cost by workers who now get to view themselves as consumers in a way that they wouldn't have if the grinding immiseration of capitalism was as... Uh, was still concentrated in Europe, in Europe right. and sustained in Europe the way that Marx imagined. Yeah, and it created new domina- new relationships of domination and exploitation between the metropole and the colony yes. that I think is right, that I think makes it overdetermined. And I think one of the most interesting things that we're going to be able to do in this, in this uh, show is essentially identify which moments were overdetermined and which yes. moments were actually plastic Precisely. according to what uh, the, the relationship essentially between structure and agent and the restricted agency of people like you said, as Mark said, living in a world, but not entirely of their own making. And this is what we'll explore. And, and next time we'll come back and we'll, we'll check out the German revolutions of 1819 when certain different choices could have been made and the world could have been a totally different place. Absolutely. Absolutely.